Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Houston, we have a problem. The U.S. orders China to close its consulate there. Conspiracy clampdown. Twitter closes thousands of accounts linked to disinformation. And Tesla's triumph. The carmaker reports earnings after a huge valuation surge. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Fantastic to have you with us as always. We're bringing the show well and truly back to COVID science, stimulus help and geopolitical strife. As you just heard there, U.S. futures were a lot weaker than they look right now earlier. A red flag of warning as investors acknowledge further dramatic deterioration in China-U.S. relations. As I mentioned, the United States ordering the closure of Chinese's consulate in Houston, Texas. China now vowing to retaliate. What does that look like? We'll get to Beijing shortly for the latest. The counter to that and helping sentiment, I think, news that the U.S. has committed to spend $2 billion on 100 million doses of Pfizer's COVID vaccine candidate. Pfizer shares, as you can see, up some 5% pre-market, while the investment and that investment only made more urgent by the latest U.S. numbers. We saw 1,000 deaths linked to the virus yesterday, while hospitalizations are nearing April's peak. Even nations that handled the virus well remain challenged. Look at Hong Kong, seeing 600 new cases over the past weeks. Tokyo cases also hitting new highs. We've got a push and a pull of encouraging vaccine news and economic support versus downbeat health data, which is creating a choppy trading environment, creating a lot of concern too for stocks around the world and a flow of money into safer assets like bonds. Look at the Nasdaq falling from record highs yesterday. Microsoft, Tesla, the stocks to watch in earnings today. For now, though, European stocks pulled back from four-month highs yesterday. Asia stocks finishing mostly lower. Hong Kong underperforming down more than 2%, giving back all those strong gains from Tuesday. Caution is the word, I think, in light of current events. And that makes sense. We begin our drivers today with the drama in Houston, a fire at the Chinese consulate there in Texas. Police say it was caused by burning documents at the compound. This comes shortly after the U.S. ordered China to close the consulate by Friday of this week. It also comes as the U.S. accuses Chinese hackers of trying to steal coronavirus vaccine research. David Culver is live in Beijing with the latest. David, a dramatic escalation on top of all the other issues that you and I have been discussing. What more do we know about this order from the United States about the closure of this consulate? I was just thinking, Julia, you and I have been adding to the list, it seems, with each passing week. The tensions continuing to rise. This is significant. It cannot be understated. And what the U.S. is saying is the reason that they have closed this consulate, this according to the State Department, is because of illegal spying, essentially, and interference on behalf of China in U.S. domestic politics. They don't go into specifics here. But what was interesting is Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was asked this just a few minutes ago when he was speaking with Denmark's foreign minister. And he was asked specifically why now and why the Houston consulate in particular. We acknowledged in the past that there has been issues with China and intellectual property theft. In fact, 
That goes back to the start of the trade war, as it's been something that's been addressed quite frequently. And claims of, of cyber and, and hacking. Uh, however, this now is a move that many are looking at as potentially political on behalf of the U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo says this is about national security. This has nothing to do with politics. However, the Chinese, nonetheless, are planning to respond. I want you to listen a little bit to what the foreign minister's spokesperson had to say today. Take a listen. It is a political provocation unilaterally launched by the U.S. side, which seriously violates international law, basic norms governing international relations, and the bilateral consular agreement between China and the U.S. China strongly condemns such an outrageous and unjustified move, which will sabotage China-U.S. relations. Julia, one of the things that you and I have spoken about is the rhetoric and the increased rhetoric uh, of being rather heated from China on behalf of uh, what the U.S. has done uh, on many occasions and calling them out with regards to Hong Kong and even stripping it of its special trade status after the national security law was imposed there or go to Xinjiang and the far western region and alleged human rights abuses that the U.S. has issued sanctions against Chinese officials on. Or you can even go to the South China Sea, not to mention the pandemic that we're still dealing with and allegations of widespread cover-up and mishandling. All of that has been met by China with seemingly heated rhetoric, not as much action matching that just yet. And, and they have issued some sanctions against U.S. officials. However, it stopped short there. The question is, what do they do next now with regards to this closure of a consulate? It seems domestic media here, state media, is pushing, and certainly on Chinese social media, that there has to be something equivalent, such as the closure of a U.S. consulate. Reuters are suggesting that could be the Wuhan consulate. However, the reality is there's not many American diplomats there because the onset of the epidemic and the pandemic now, they left. They were evacuated, Julia. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? Proportional, a proportionate response always, it seems, from the China, no matter what the behavior is from the United States here. They try and keep it balanced and not create further escalation. But one questions and one has to wonder as we head towards a U.S. presidential election with, again, both the Democrats and the Republicans on board with tackling and closing in on China's behavior here, what more comes? David, the United States yesterday saying two specific hackers, not only targeting vaccine research, but also that they've targeted companies around the world. This is not just about the United States. It's about other nations here, too. And that is exactly what Secretary of State Mike Pompeo addressed just a few minutes ago with the foreign minister of Denmark. He said part of his reason for going to the UK and now Denmark is to stress that the threat against freedom-loving nations, as Secretary of State Pompeo put it, uh, by the Chinese Communist Party, specifically pointing out the party, not generically China, is why he's trying to address that now in a more, uh, I'd say, confrontational setting. It seems they're doing it, obviously, with action with the Houston uh, consulate. Uh, but it's also addressing years of the hacking. Now, this goes back to the, the uh, reference that you make to those two hackers goes back several years. I mean, it's more recently that they acknowledge that perhaps there may have been interference with coronavirus and pandemic research. But they also say it goes many years back, a decade back into other biotech and other intellectual property from around the world. So it's, it's clear the U.S. is trying to build a, a Western coalition, if you will, including many of the Five Eyes nations, to come against the Chinese Communist Party in pushing this. What I wonder is, will China respond beyond the closure of a consulate? Will they take increased action? Or are they waiting 
the long game here and going to play it out through the U.S. election just to see what administration they'll be dealing with a few months from now. Yeah, that long game feels like a really long time at this moment. It's a long way and a long time to come till November. David Culver. Thank you so much, as always, for your perspective. All right. Thanks, Julia. All right. The U.S. President Donald Trump returned to the White House press room Tuesday to hold his first coronavirus briefing since April, with around 142,000 people in the United States having now lost their lives as a result of COVID-19. The president acknowledged the grim reality of the crisis. Some areas of our country are doing very well. Others are doing less well. It will probably, unfortunately, get worse before it gets better. Something I don't like saying about things, but that's the way it is. It's the way, it's what we have. And we're asking everybody that when you are not able to socially distance, wear a mask, get a mask. Uh, Whether you like the mask or not, uh, they have an impact, they'll have an effect, and we need everything we can get. The president went on to say that the White House is working on a plan to combat the virus. Uh, We are uh, in the process of developing a strategy that's going to be very, very powerful. We've developed them as we go along. John Harwood joins us now. John, important, I think, to underscore here the tone shift. Late, but better late than never here, John. But the acknowledgement that they're working on a plan months and months and months later to me defies reason and logic. Yeah, but Julia, he said it was a very, very powerful plan. I'm being facetious, of course. Uh, look, they should have had a plan a long time ago. Uh, this is uh, uh, a brush fire in the United States right now. Not going well at all. But I think the uh, significant point is the one you just made uh, initially, which is better late than never. If the president is going to adopt a more realistic tone about the course of the pandemic, if he's going to gird Americans to expect more, ask them to wear masks, ask them to socially distance, ask them to pay attention to public health authorities, that makes uh, yesterday better than the day before was and better than the day before that. Uh, We'll see uh, what they deliver if there is a new plan on testing uh, on guidelines for school reopening and and the follow through on that. Uh, But uh, uh, when you're in a a crisis, as the United States is right now, to have the president adopt a a more uh, connected to reality approach to it is better than uh, not doing that. Agree completely. Credit where credit's due as well. One area where they have had a plan and it came together very quickly, Operation Warp Speed, investment, progress in vaccine. Announcement just this morning, $2 billion being spent by the United States to get access to Pfizer's vaccine candidate, if possible. 100 million doses, potential millions more if it works here, John. This is critical too. That is the bright spot of this uh, situation at the moment. And honestly, I think when things began to get a little bit better in May, uh, the administration took a gamble that therapeutics and vaccine would come on a timetable that would mean that they had done basically what they needed to do, states could do the rest. Uh, We've gone into reverse and that's uh, uh, a big setback. On the other hand, uh, the way in which uh, both the scientists and the government have truncated this process by setting up a manufacturer of vaccine even before it's approved in the confidence that it's likely to be approved means that we're going to get 
a vaccine sooner than people expected when this pandemic began. You had the executive from AstraZeneca yesterday telling uh, uh, lawmakers on Capitol Hill that we could have from September onward a vaccine available for emergency use. That is not going to be available for the general public. It's something that might be used for healthcare providers in uh, a special hotspots of this pandemic, but it's very positive news uh, on the uh, multiple fronts in terms of vaccine candidates. And uh, it appears uh, quite likely we will get one and it will be uh, available to some people uh, before the end of the year and a much larger group of people in 2021. Makes sense. John, I also want to talk very quickly. We know there's debate. We discussed it yesterday, even on the Republican side, between the Republicans and the White House over the contours of what future aid looks like. Let's hone in on testing. It seems of the initial $25 billion that was allocated in the last program to testing, seven or $8 billion remains unspent. How can that be? Well, look, the, the president's been pretty transparent about his attitude toward testing, and he said it over and over. Uh, testing reveals more cases, and the president thinks that uh, revealing more cases makes him look bad, makes the response of his administration look bad. He, he describes it differently, said so we wouldn't have cases uh, if we didn't test. Well, obviously, that's ridiculous because the cases exist whether you test or whether you don't. Uh, but the uh, scale of the crisis right now that has forced the president to adopt this different tone as his poll numbers have uh, dropped, have also eroded the bargaining position of both the White House and Republicans that are resisting that extra money. So I think in the negotiations between Democrats, uh, Hill Republicans and the White House, that money for testing is going to be set aside uh, and there will be pressure on the administration to spend it more rapidly and robustly than they have so far. Yes. To use your word, a powerful, or well, the president's word, a powerful presidential pivot required on testing too. John Harwood, great to have you with us. Thank you. Yeah. Now, social media stepping up. Twitter has removed more than 7,000 accounts related to QAnon, a group known for spreading conspiracy theories, including baseless claims of politicians and celebrities being engaged in child sex abuse. Donny O'Sullivan has been following the story for us. Donny, interesting move from Twitter, interesting perhaps reasoning why they chose to do this now as well. Explain. Yeah, that's right, Julia. I mean, I guess good on Twitter for taking some action here, but also, you know, it raises the question, what took them so long? You know, even more interesting than the fact that they removed 7,000 accounts is that they're saying that they are no longer going to sort of serve up or algorithmically uh, recommend uh, QAnon content. I think a lot of people, when they heard that, Last night, I, I know I certainly was, was wondering, you know, why was Twitter recommending this content in the first place? Twitter estimated that about 150,000 accounts on its service right now could be impacted by this. That basically means that 150,000 accounts at least could be pushing this sort of nonsense. But what is really interesting here is that, you know, QAnon has been around for a long time. It has taken on a life of its own and it's festered on Twitter for ages, frankly. Just a few days ago, just last week, the um, actress, uh, television personality model, uh, Chrissy Teigen, who is um, one of Twitter's most 
popular and uh, famous users, uh, she complained about how she was uh, publicly about how she was being harassed by QAnon users. Um, and last night, she actually made the point, pushing back to some people who were saying, you know, this is you're going against freedom of speech here. Twitter is censoring people. She made the point. You don't have a right to coordinate attacks and make death threats. It is not an opinion to call people pedophiles who rape and eat children. Now, that is obviously an extremely graphic image, but that is the reality of the nonsense that is being pushed on Twitter. So, you know, I think it is very possible that uh, Chrissy Teigen uh, raising uh, this issue really put it higher on um, Twitter's list of priorities. And, you know, that that's also sad in the sense that, you know, it, is that what it takes for these social media companies to take something like this very seriously? Julia? Very quickly, Danny, because I've got around 30 seconds. This is Twitter making a judgment call on content, on misinformation, on accounts. Facebook not making a judgment on the content quality or the information coming from President Trump and, and Joe Biden. But it will label and provide fact-based information. This is also an important step, if not enough. It's yes. a move. Yeah. So two things, I guess. Yes, Facebook is now starting to slap little labels uh, linking out to a government voting website anytime President Trump or, or Joe Biden uh, mention this year's election. But unlike Twitter, they are not making a judgment call. They are not fact-checking those posts, so it's causing a lot of confusion. Um, and also, of course, we haven't heard, you know, there are plenty of QAnon Facebook groups and posts and pages on Facebook. We haven't heard anything from Facebook. It'll be interesting to see if they follow Twitter's lead here on tackling uh, QAnon. Julia? Yes. Stepping up, censorship or still not enough, you decide. Don't you, Sullivan? <laughs> Thank you so much for that. Thanks. All right, we're going to take a break here on First Move, but coming up, we're charging up for some electrifying news. The CEO of electric vehicle maker Fisker joins us while rival Tesla reports results. And the bots worth billions, software robots, that is, the firm that promises to make work simpler. I speak to the CEO of UiPath. That's coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move Live from New York, where U.S. stock markets pointing to a mixed open pre-markets on news that the U.S. has tapped Pfizer and its German partner BioNTech to produce 100 million doses of their COVID vaccine candidate. The price tag for this, $2 billion. The offset, of course, the challenges between the United States and China, as we've been discussing. So investors trying to just get a sense of where we go from here. The Nasdaq hoping to gain back some of its summertime sizzle. After a losing session Tuesday, as we await key earnings, too, from Microsoft and Tesla after the bell, nervousness also over the economic impact of COVID-19 still playing into broader sentiment here, too. In that vein, United Airlines announcing it lost more than one and a half billion dollars in the last quarter, with revenues falling 85 percent. Its cash position, however, is improving. Companies that are providing Wall Street with better visibility, many aren't, of course, have outperformed those that have pulled guidance overall. Alicia Levine is the chief strategist at BNY Mellon Investment Management, and she joins us now. Alicia, great to have you on the show. As always, welcome. I want to hone in on technology and the importance for the broader stock market here. However important technology is, and we've learned that in particular over the past few months, the dominance of some of the five let's call it biggest tech companies, makes me nervous. Do you share that concern? I, I do share that concern because the five large cap tech stocks are now 25% of the market weighted 
um, S&P index, which is historically unheard of. Even in 1999, the five largest stocks were not that overweight. So we're well above a period that was thought of as excess. In addition, the last couple of weeks, the tech sector has actually underperformed the rest of the S&P constituents. So even as we've had a softer tech index, we've had the S&P moving higher, meaning the rest of the constituents are trying to play catch up here. Even still, year to date, the outperformance of those five cap, uh, those five large cap tech stocks is still 43% coming into this mm-hmm. morning. So it's just extraordinary. Um, it, it is extraordinary. And it suggests that for the market to move higher, you need to have tech at least not go down. Right. So flat is OK. But if there's any turn in tech, it could take the index with it. It's quite fascinating, though, if we look at the market overall, what does positioning look like? Because for me, this doesn't look in any way extreme. In fact, we've seen a lot of flows going into safer assets like bonds, for example, some of the precious metals, too. What's your sense of, of positioning here, to your point, about needing tech in particular to hold up here? Look, that's really a great point, Julia, because investors are overall defensively positioned meaning by a factor of four to one, flows have gone into the bonds, not into equities. And investors are holding some of the highest levels of cash ever, suggesting that the equities are not overbought here overall. Now, I know there's been like a lot of discussion about Robinhood and retail investors pushing certain stocks up. But overall, the overall picture is in fact that investors are very cautious which suggests that there is some floor under the market and ultimately why we are constructive going forward, even if we get some volatility here in the next few months. Oh, I love your point about Robin Hood. And I do think we have to debunk myths on this. This is a pipsqueak, tiny piece of a multi-trillion dollar stock market. And I think we have to keep that in mind when we talk and we see all the column inches dedicated to this important story, but in the broader market overall, how important is this? It's it, it, it's really um, a very small fraction. And so the flows are really telling you that because the flows are going into the bonds and into cash, into money market funds. So it's just something to keep in mind. I mean, it's interesting, but let's put it aside. What I do like is that we are bringing in a new generation of investors. And if you think about what happened after the global financial crisis, we lost we lost retail investors here because people were so burned. I think it's great that there's a new generation interested in investing, learning the stock market. So I think that's all positive. Yeah, that's a fascinating point to make as well. The democratization of access to financial markets, but from a younger audience too. Um, Alicia, fascinating report you wrote recently looking at the probabilities of the kind of recovery that we might see in the United States. And actually, I was quite astonished to see you allocated a a 50% probability to a V-shaped recovery. What kind of assumptions are you making about further financial support in that regard? And are you still confident about those probabilities in light of the health risks that we're seeing are continuing to increase here? 
Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Look, we do have a 50% chance of a V-shaped recovery, which in the world of economists of alphabet soup, that is the most um, optimistic scenario. But we are equally weighted to other downside scenarios as well. Embedded within that optimistic scenario is the assumption that the central bank will do whatever it takes, both here in the, at the Fed and also globally, and also that fit the fiscal stimulus will keep on coming. I think the message out of Europe was extremely optimistic for the recovery there. And I do think that here we are going to get a bill, at least in the $1.5 trillion range, to get over the fiscal cliff, which happens next week. So embedded yeah. in that is a lot of a lot of policy support. And as we've talked about in the past, Julia, you know, in the end, investors cannot fight the policy support. There's just too much liquidity sloshing around the market here. Yeah. And endless promises of doing whatever it takes to get us through this, whether you're a central bank or it seems a government, too. And the combination of these two forces is unprecedented. Overused word, but the right word. It is the right word. It, look, if we do get a $1.5 trillion second large stimulus bill here in the U.S., the total fiscal stimulus is going to be 20% of U.S. GDP in the course of four or five months. Now, that's extraordinary. Uh, again, unprecedented. But that's what's holding up consumption. And consumption is 70% of U.S. GDP. It'll hold up that side of it. And on the other hand, we see that manufacturing and the industrial economy is actually rebounding pretty nicely. So if you put the two together, together, you can get an optimistic scenario. Now, there are a lot of not great scenarios out there also, but it's not it's not unheard of to have something like that. Yeah, just got to get the health crisis under control. Alicia Devine, great yeah. to have you with us. The Chief Strategist at BNY Mellon Investment Management. A pleasure as always. Thank you. It's great to see you. Likewise. The opening bell's next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. And U.S. stocks are up and running this Wednesday. Let's take a look at some of the big movers. Among them, Pfizer shares rallying as the U.S. commits to spending $2 billion for 100 million doses of its COVID vaccine when and if it proves effective. The U.S. also has rights to buy an additional 500 million doses. Also keeping an eye on Tesla, set to report second quarter results later today. Their shares have jumped more than 270 percent. I was getting a little overexcited there so far this year. Microsoft is also reporting its earnings this afternoon. Much of the focus on the company's cloud business. Claire Sebastian has all the details. Claire, let's start with Microsoft. Will investors be left on cloud nine? Couldn't help myself. Tell us um, more. <laughs> that is the question, Julia. I think the big focus is on the cloud business. That has really been a source of strength. I think the key line from Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, in the last earnings report, he said, as COVID-19 impacts every aspect of our work and life, we have seen two years worth of digital transformation in the space of two months. I think the question uh, for this quarter is how much more digital transformation continued uh, into, into the, 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 the three months between uh, April and June. So I think that is a key question. Will it be enough to offset some declines that they did see uh, in the previous quarter in terms of their transactional business, licensing for products uh, and things like that, and, and advertising. They also, of course, have advertising on things like LinkedIn. We know LinkedIn uh, has had to cut some jobs. So it's that balance that we see with these tech companies between the, the short-term spending cuts from businesses who are, of course, 
their clients and the long-term digital transformation, which will continue to propel them forward. They are priced very high. They're, they're within a few percent of a record high, the share price right now. So I think there could be some pressure on the stock if they do end up even slightly missing expectations. Yeah, and social media firm Snap today also warning on advertising. So very interesting point to watch on that in particular. Claire, what about Tesla? Will they or will they not hit that elusive fourth quarter profit and see entry into the S&P 500? Yeah, I mean, I think if you're talking price for perfection, a 275% rise uh, in the space of a year, you're pretty much there. But having said that, uh, there are people who think that there's more for Tesla to run. They they smashed estimates uh, for second quarter delivery. They came in at 90,000 deliveries, even with uh, a six or seven week stoppage in their production in California. Uh, so there's an awful lot riding on this. If they do post uh, a profit, that will be their fourth consecutive profit. That makes them eligible for entry into the S&P 500. It doesn't guarantee it. This is an actively managed index. The, the decision then goes to the index committee, which is a group of market experts, and they have to decide whether Tesla will be part of their next index rebalancing. But that could give a boost to the stock because it will mean, of course, passive inflows into that as funds that track the index start to invest automatically into Tesla. So a huge amount riding on this earnings report for that company. Yes. And uh, sorry, if we lost you a little bit there at the end, but huge amount riding on this report. I could hear you anyway. Claire Sebastian, great to have you with us. Thank you. Now, our next guest is someone who knows just a little bit about Tesla and Elon Musk, as well as the electric car market, having been part of design teams of some beautiful cars. Henrik Fisker now wants to take on the EV market with his own new creation. His namesake company plans to begin selling its crossover SUV called Ocean in 2022 for around 40,000 US dollars. It's financing the production through unusual means, too, by going public through a reverse merger with an already listed company whose sole purpose was to merge with another. The deal values Fisker at nearly $3 billion. Henrik Fisker is the chairman and CEO of Fisker, and he joins us now. Henrik, fantastic to have you with us. I've just been looking at some of the uh, images here of the uh, SUV. Pretty beautiful looking car, I have to say. Talk us through what it is that makes this distinctive in your mind. Well, first of all, apart from design and the fact that it looks like a real SUV, I think that's yeah. missing in the market in, in electric vehicles. But also, we're aiming this to be the world's most sustainable vehicle. So, for instance, all the carpets are made from recycled plastic bottles and fishing nets from the ocean. And uh, so everything is sustainable about this vehicle. We use other recycled materials. We have a large solar roof on the vehicle. So I think the world is really, after COVID, going towards a cleaner world. And we got to do something about it. So our idea was to make the world's most sustainable car, but make it good looking, make it affordable. And that's what we have done. This is the first in a range of vehicles. And uh, we, we went out with, a, 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 as you mentioned, a, a reverse merger to make sure we financed the entire project all the way to production. Quite fascinating. When I saw the price tag on this, I thought that can't be right. Is that an on-the-road price or are there going to be all sorts of additions in terms of cost? Like, What's the on-the-road price on average for, for this SUV? No, it will be starting from 40000 But obviously, if you want the large hi-fi stereo and you want, you know, a, a whole bunch of options, of course, it'll uh, go higher up. I would expect that the average price is somewhere around forty-five dollars to $50,000, maybe a little higher, depending, again, what you want. But the point here is to create a vehicle which is really com, you know, competitive with a, a similar gasoline vehicle, and that's what this is. 
but also really, uh, you know, go in and look at how can we make a vehicle more sustainable? How can we make the future cleaner? And we love our cars and we got to make the cars cleaner. And that's our mission is, is really to make the world's most sustainable vehicles and also go into a market segment, which right now is all hatchback crossovers in the EV segment around forty to $50,000. And I think making a real SUV is something that people will like. We also have something unique called the California mode where all the windows goes down by a push of a button, including the rear windows. You can throw in a surfboard in the back. We've got a lot of really <laughs> cool features. You look, you look like a solar panel as well uh, on the roof there. I just want to talk about the production because there are similarities and there are differences. When I look at some of the competitors and the obvious one to, to be talking about here is Tesla for many reasons. You've outsourced a lot of the manufacturing. You also offer a leasing arrangement where customers can just pay a monthly lease to have this car and then, and then give it back. Talk to me about this too, because I think this is an important piece of the jigsaw puzzle for Fisker. Yeah, so to address both questions, first of all, I think hardware that you don't see is uh, is, is in the past. Uh, in the future, uh, nobody's going to care about the hardware when we go all electric. Everything is, is a new digital revolution. And when it comes to the hardware, think about your television screen. Nobody ever anymore asks who makes your television screen. People ask what's the content on your television. It's all about content. And it's the same in, in, in cars. So we decided that manufacturing, we would rather outsource it. We're talking to groups like Magna, which is very recognized for making vehicles for many different car makers. And they obviously are super professional in doing this, make high quality vehicles. So we, won't, we don't want to take that risk of production hell, as, as Tesla called it. Uh, so that's the first thing. The second part is our flexible lease. I think the new consumer of the future, they want to have flexibility. They don't want to get tied into a 36 months lease. So with our vehicle, you can actually lease it and give it back after three months, six months, a year. We'll then take the vehicle back. We'll, if it needs fixing up, we'll fix it. We'll send it back out for a lower price to somebody else, and it'll still have full warranty. We do all the service. We pick up the car for service. So it's basically the new hassle-free mobility, but still driving a cool, sustainable vehicle. Hmm. Henrik, there'll be those that recognize the name Fisker Automotive and say, hang on a second, is this another moonshot by Henrik? You had a a bankruptcy back in, in 2013. Obviously, we've mentioned the financing arrangement and the differences this time around. Why is this time different for you? Well, you know, we were one of the first ones out. Uh, you have to remember that we launched the original Fisker Karma one and a half year before the Tesla Model S was launched. We had a, a very small startup battery supplier that went bankrupt in the middle of, of it as we were delivering vehicles. Now, we did get several thousand vehicles on the road all over the world. We had a lot of celebrities like Leonardo DiCaprio buying the car, and it was a great learning experience of what to do and what not to do. And I think the lessons learned is really to not use uh, startup companies when it comes to this new technology like batteries. So we are obviously in discussion with larger battery companies, which, by the way, there's more of now. There, wasn't, there was only about three battery companies back in 2011 when we actually launched the car, which were very early. And we were sort of a pioneer. There was a lot of innovation and risk. We were the first to do a full-length solar roof. We were the first to probably do a vegan interior with reclaimed wood. So, you know, we are taking all these lessons learned and we are kind of going into a different segment with, uh, with the ocean being an SUV. But I think also now you have a supply base which actually is mature and that's why you see a lot more EV companies. But I think our difference is really the business model and our, you know, really more sexy design and, and our sustainability point uh, as well. You obviously worked 
at Tesla, no Elon Musk. How's your relationship with him right now, given that you're a, you're a competitor? And have you learned some lessons from his behavior and what he's been through over the past uh, several years? Well, you know, I think he's so successful right now that he's probably flying around Mars right now. So, you know, as a competitor, you know, it's not like we're, we're hanging out or talking at all. Uh, I think we've been fierce competitors for, for, for quite a while. Uh, and I think he's done quite a terrific job. Uh, I mean, he's definitely put electrification on the map, clearly showed uh, that there is a way forward in electrification. But we also have to recognize that there really isn't an alternative to Tesla. If somebody is, is looking for, you know, a cool electric car from an EV company that only makes EVs, the only choice today is Tesla. And I think in America, in the world, we should have choice. And we are really want to offer a choice. We are not here to take customers away from Tesla. We are here to offer a choice for people who want to get out of the gasoline SUV and into another cool SUV. And that's why we're making the Fisker Ocean. And on top of that, making it as sustainable as possible. And I think that's where we're different. With all the recycled materials we use, uh, just the design, uh, our, our user interface, our flexible lease, as you mentioned, all these things are sort of uh, really uh, e-mobility as, as a service. And that's what we are looking yeah. at. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, Tesla investors are loving Henrik Fisker right now. The question is, will they love you in the future when this car comes to market? We shall see. Good luck, Sarah, and stay in touch. It's great to chat to you. Thank you Henrik Fisker there, chairman Thank and CEO of Fisker there. All right, up next, UiPath makes software robots for the likes of Amazon, Google, and even NASA. The CEO joins me as the company's valuation hits $10 billion. Find out how and why next. Never mind the unicorn, meet tech's newest Decacorn. UiPath software bots are worth $10.2 billion. That's according to its latest funding round, at least. The company automates routine and repetitive tasks through a process called robotic process automation, also known as RPA. Here's how it works. A company identifies repeated routine tasks done by their workers. RPA developers record how the worker does the job, then creates code to do the job automatically. The worker then, you hope, is freed up to do more complicated tasks. And joining us now is Daniel Dines. He's co-founder and CEO of UiPath. Daniel, fantastic to have you on the show. It's basically fast, efficient, effective automation at the core of this. And you're doing it for the majority of, what, Fortune 500 companies. Thank you for inviting me. Yes, absolutely. I love the way you define it. I think our technology works across business verticals. We work with the majority of uh, Fortune 500 companies. And I can say that during this uh, crisis, we have worked even more. We have helped a lot of our customers with their way to cope with the crisis. Yeah, you've been working with hospitals as well to be able to analyze some of the COVID test results. It's all about fast data processing and and using software robots to do it. Yeah, I would say it's also about eliminating the need for bureaucratic paperwork. Hmm. For instance, Cleveland Clinic, we uh, have uh, helped them to say three hours a day for each nurse. And these hours were dedicated in turn to help their patients. 
So it means people are more efficient. This is not about job replacement because these, this is always the question that comes up when you talk about automation. The immediate fear is that it's going to cost jobs. You're saying it's just about greater efficiency. Yes, absolutely. This is all about efficiency and let people do jobs more appropriate for what humans are meant. Like in the case of nurses for helping patients instead of just filling paperwork. But I can also imagine there will be jobs that are made redundant as a result of this. And this is why upskilling, retraining is so important, too. And I know you've talked about this idea of democratizing access to, to RPA, just providing free training. Talk to me about this, too. And does this apply to the businesses that you're working with as well? This is absolutely a great point. And we believe, like uh, any advance in technology, not only automation, the nature of jobs will change. I don't think people will lose their jobs, but they have to upskill their work. For instance, we work in the United States to help 750,000 people to be trained in our technology. We have a pledge to help American workers to, to, to get more skills into automating the routine part of their jobs. And this is not only related to United States. We work across the world. Our, we, we have invested a lot in our community. We are very proud to have millions of people across the world learning to be prepared for the next generation of jobs. Daniel, I mentioned your $10 billion valuation. What about an IPO? Timing, thoughts on this? We had plans to IPO even before COVID, but we made the promise to ourselves that we will file only when we are on our path to profitability. I can tell that uh, COVID has actually accelerated our plans. We are able to hit our top line numbers before that we planned before COVID, and in the same time, we managed to cut down on discretionary cost. We are in a very solid financial situation now. And definitely, we plan to IPO next year. A Romanian company trailblazing in Silicon Valley. Daniel, come back and talk to us soon because I want to talk about your experiences as a startup and um, raising money throughout this process because I'm sure you've got some good stories. But for now, I'm going to say thank you. Daniel Dines, great to have you with us, co-founder and CEO of UiPath. Thank you. All right. After the break, an innovation original shows us a little work and a lot of sparkle gets the job done. Stay with us. And finally, a life lesson on the spirit of innovation from an American generation that remembers pretty bleak times, too. 94-year-old May Cryer is one of the original Rosie the Riveters. Thousands of women like her stepped in to fill labor shortages during the Second World War. May worked in a Boeing factory back then, building warplanes. Now she's making red polka dot face masks, similar to the famous red and white bandana worn in the iconic Rosie the Riveter posters. Earlier, CNN had a chance to hear about her story. I've always made the polka dot uh, bandanas for uh, we travel. We go to Washington and places, and whenever we do, they love the, the bandanas. And uh, 
I was making a lot of them when this virus started and I just switched over from bandanas to face masks and it's just snowballed. I said, it's amazing. I made 300 by myself and send them out to my friends and just people that, that my neighbors, my families, what have you. But now with it's been on the news, we've got over a thousand requests. So now I've got to, you know, reach out to a lot of friends have offered to help me. So we'll get there, we can do it. The energy I have, I'm very fortunate. I was gifted with good energy, good health. At first I started with the material. People were starting to send me material and elastic and everything that I need from all over the country is absolutely amazing. I'm just stunned. When I was on Facebook and I said, I just mentioned that I ran out of elastic and I wouldn't go to a store now to get any. And the first thing I did, I got a whole package of thread, everything that I needed from Delaware. And that started, it just seemed like everywhere people wanted to help me. And it's absolutely amazing. Every day I get material, elastic or thread, everything I need. And American people are wonderful, but 99% of our people are just great. When you need something or need them, they're there for you. Well, you know, we went through the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl. I came from the Middle West. And it was really difficult times. And you know, we, when we uh, the World, World War II was declared, we just all banded together, men, women, and children, and we did what had to be done. I don't understand why people can't band together now. It, it just seems to me we wore bandanas and we were, uh, uh, we carried rivet guns. The girls in the shipyards had to wear the heavy welding things and they carried torches. We did that for days for and years. And I think that uh, wearing a mask seems simple to me after going through that. What a message. American May Cryer. Amazing then, amazing now. That's it for the show. I'm Julia Chatley. You've been watching First Move. Stay safe and I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.